Welcome to the podcast of New City Church. We hope this podcast inspires you on your journey of inward and outward transformation. Please join us on Sundays. You can find more information on our website, grownewcity.church. God bless you. In our scripture reading today, we heard of um, the, the verb to tear, uh, the, the sense of the heavens tearing open, the sky tearing open, and the Holy Spirit descending like a dove onto Jesus as he's being baptized, torn open. Interestingly, this is the same verb that is used at the end of the gospel. The, gospel, the gospels are the biographies that we have of Jesus. At the end of Mark, it's the same verb as the curtain tearing in two. The curtain uh, that separated the common folks and then the priests and then the holy of holies. It tore in two. Jesus is, does a lot of like ripping open uh, in in the Gospel of Mark, at least during some really important parts. And I think that all of this is uh, a querying of the eschatology. Oh boy, we're getting into it. We're querying some eschatology here. All of this is saying that. Um, uh, the constructed binary of what was understood as heaven and what was understood as earth were all being torn apart, that there was a blurring happening in the ministry of Jesus. There was a, an invitation from Christ to say that the constructs that we have, however helpful that they might be, must necessarily be rend apart if we are to encounter an abundant and infinite God. And my question uh, when reading through this is maybe perhaps not a uh, more of more of an organizational leader question than a scholarly question. Um, yeah, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll circle back to this. Um, the word eschatology is simply a, fa- a fancy seminary word for describing what happens after you die. So like when people talk about like going to heaven or going to hell, New City... I, pre- I believe that all of creation is going to heaven, so that's a whole other thing. But it, it's like eschatology is kind of like what happens after you die. And Jesus comes tearing a, a, a rift between heaven and earth to say like, hey, uh, heaven has come to earth. And like all of that is blending together in a way that will change everything. Uh, thanks for that question. So, um, uh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> the, <laughs> the heaven binary is a construct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, like, eschatology is, like, what happens after we die, and then it's also the conversation of um, what happens ultimately, like, in the end game of, of what we're all about. And we see, again, this queering of the binary between heaven and earth in the most eschatological book <laughs> in in Revelation. I'm sorry that we're taking like a mini seminary class right now. Uh, that in, in Revelation, the very end of the Bible, which is the book most dedicated to describing kind of like what happens in the end of times. And we have this image of heaven as a city smacking on down to earth and saying like, hey, guess what? This is a construct. Like heaven and earth is a binary that is a construct and God is choosing to be among creation. It was previously helpful for us to understand these as separate. 
However, for us to like truly leaning, lean into a life with God, we have to understand like heaven as something that is constantly effervescently emerging from earth, like vapor. Like when that is heaven on earth. Um, so thank, uh, thank you for, for asking me to clarify that because I think this is a really important concept uh, for today. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so yeah, I, as an organizational leader, as someone who teaches workshops on lean startups and how to, how to, how to uh, entrepreneurially do things in a very lean kind of way, one of the questions that I ask when reading this text is, um, isn't that a little wasteful, God? <laughs> um, let's, let's do a quick like time lapse of how long it took to make the heavens. Ready? So this is from the Smithsonian Environmental Research Center. 4.6 billion not million, billion, type a capital B into the chat, like billion, that's like 10, what is it, nine zeros, 4.6, and then like, you know, uh, three, six, eight zeros after that. 4.6 billion years ago, the earth was like gas and solid things, and there was no sky. Uh, this is what scientists are telling us. Like, it, it was just like, oh, we're just floating through space and there's no sky. <laughs> and uh, that was 4.6 billion years ago. Uh, uh, mix of solids and gas and no atmosphere. And then 2.7 billion years ago, 2.7 billion years, so like a lot of time passing between this, cyanobacteria begin to photosynthesize, begin the process of being able to do photosynthesis. And so that was like when oxygen started being introduced into the planet. 2.7 billion, with a B, years ago. And then uh, between 2.6 billion and 400 million years ago, there started to be enough oxygen to turn the sky blue between 2.6 billion and 400 million years ago million years ago when you look up to the sky you are seeing like billions of years of stuff <laughs> coming into process like this is the long history of of what it took for the sky to be formed and as someone who like passionately affirm science as a way of understanding the logic of God, I see God moving through this, you know, these solids and gases swirling in the atmosphere. And I see God moving through like the genesis of photosynthesis. And I see God moving uh, in changing the sky from a red sky to a blue sky. Like, all through the prayers of these cyanobacteria, <laughs> like, all of this makes theological sense for me as, as well as scientific sense for me. And there's a long time coming. And then, 2,000 years ago, which in the scale of 4.6 billion years is like, you know, basically yesterday, uh, God 
we have this story of God tearing the heavens apart, tearing the heavens apart. And I imagine that this is a, a bit of a, um, a poetic description of, of something like visually stark. Like I don't, I don't believe that there was like an ozone hole being created literally, but I just love to stick with this image of being torn open, of, of God being like, I'm gonna work on this sky for 4.6 billion years. <laughs> I'm gonna like every day kind of like start like uh, knitting together the sky and oxygen and all of this, 4.6 billion years. And then something so important is going to happen that I'm going to rip it apart. I'm going to tear open the very like constructs of of all of the whole all of civilizations are based off of like being able to understand our relationship to all of it. Like I'm going to just tear that right up so that the Holy Spirit like a dove could come to humanity, to come to creation. I'm going to I'm going to make a way where there was no way because I, I want the Holy Spirit to come to creation. And as I've been in conversations with our community members, the word that I hear emerging from this is that sometimes God's calling, God's work evolves and pivots. And that means that in your life, sometimes you might be called to something for a season and then something new might be brought into you. Like, you might be working on your own little, like, projects. Maybe you're not building an atmosphere, but you might be feeling passionate and called towards one certain direction, and you're like, maybe you have a certain certainty, like, this is what I was made to do. This is my, the most ex authentic expression of who I am. And, and, and you work on this, and then you arrive to a spot, and sometimes even after what feels like billions of years, you are, like God, asked to rend apart the work of your life so that the Holy Spirit can direct you in a new way. There's a, there's a certain like open-handedness that, that people of faith have to have with our lives, with the work of our lives, because if we truly are trying to say that we're listening for God, that we're trying to perceive a calling, that we're making sacrifices to pursue God, that work can't be a one-and-done listening session. There's an ongoingness to, to living into our call. There is, a, there is sometimes a needed pivot for you to be able to continue following God. And I know that a lot of you grew up in, in church systems. I, I know that some of you didn't grow up in a church at all or didn't grow up in a Christian tradition at all. Welcome, by the way. Hello. Um, and a lot of you grew up in church settings where calling was kind of like a static, monolithic thing. Like, oh, I am going to be a missionary because it is my calling. And therefore, like, I just write missionary in the, in the calling box, and then that is it. I've perceived it forever. And this is only reinforced, by the way, in higher education where we're asked to choose a major. And then it's like, okay, well, this is the direction that you're going in. However, 
if God really is going to be an, a God who is alive, there's a certain nimbleness that we have to <laughs> we have to keep up with. There's a certain like responsiveness uh, for our calling. One of the, another way to say calling is to live into your authenticity. Like uh, Howard Thurman has that amazing line that says, we're listening for the sound of the genuine. We're listening for the sound of the genuine. And so like sometimes another way to think of calling is like the sound of the genuine that is inviting you into like a more fulfilled, more true, real life. Not necessarily that it'll be cushy, but that it'll be genuine. That's another way to say calling. And sometimes we are so set in, in our developmental stages of like, this is what it means to be authentic and real. And then God says, actually, I needed you to go here so that you could go there. Like you couldn't have seen it from where you were before. So I just needed you to get here in the first place. And there's actually a more authentic calling in the other direction. Um, the other day I did, do you all ever do like, um, uh, what's it called? Escape rooms? Do, do you ever do escape rooms? Uh, or have you ever done? I'm a big fan. I think it's so fun um, to do escape rooms. And I was in this uh, escape room with some of my friends the other day. And the thing, if you've never done escape rooms, like you're in a room and you're given a puzzle and then you have to like, or like a challenge and then you have to um, use what is in the room to solve the challenge. So a lot of times it's like, oh, there's a painting of flowers and then there's a flower outside of a vase. But if I put the flower in the vase, then like a certain light switches on and then I can see the, it's like a black light and I can see something written on the wall. And then if I do, you know, like there's a very like sequential kind of puzzle. I love, love, love escape rooms. But there's someone watching you in the escape room. There's like a camera. <laughs> because like when people go into escape rooms, they get way too into it and like tear apart carpet and put holes in walls and stuff. And then there's like lots of signs that we don't touch. By the way, that is totally a throwback to when uh, Dana and I did a staff escape room. And I was like very eager and very into it. And we were going around and... <laughs> like a a statue head that I like twisted and lifted up and then I looked down and the pedestal that the statue was bolted to said do not touch <laughs> okay I'm passionate for the Lord and I just gotta figure out this puzzle so yes um yes so this is an, that's what an escape room is for those of you who for whom this is a a whole new world yes um it's very fun I love escape rooms. And so there's someone watching just to make sure you're not like completely destroying the things, kind of like I do sometimes. And, um, and they have like a microphone. And so if you are ever like um, uh, in the escape room and you looked at all the things and you just can't figure out the puzzle, you can yell like, we need a hint. And then a voice from like an intercom will tell you a hint. But the, you know, a hint is not just like the next solution. So, um, so one time we were in this room and, um, we were like, okay, I'm sure that I've checked everything and I can't find any solutions and, uh, okay, we need a hint. And from the intercom came this voice that was like, um, 
it was like a weird like poem that I can't uh, replicate right now, but it was like in the the tinder we can light a fire, but poke the ashes and you will get burned. And we're like, oh my gosh, there's a fireplace in this room that we haven't even checked out. And so we went over to the fireplace and the fireplace in itself wasn't the solution, but then we lifted up the grate of the fireplace and poked our head in, and there was a clue in the inside of the chimney! And so, <laughs> so like, all of that to say is that sometimes our calling is to get to the fireplace, but the fireplace isn't the resting stop. Like, the fireplace isn't, like, the f complete fulfillment of your calling. Sometimes I feel like God just calls me to the fireplace because if God, God knows that if I knew that I needed to climb up a chimney before I could find the clue, that I wouldn't even do it in the first place. <laughs> there are so many things in my life that's like, man, if I was in, you know, when I was like 10 years ago, 15 years ago, if I knew that I'd be where I was, that um, that I'd be pastoring a church that is, like, in the blast zone of the George Floyd uprising, if I knew how many challenges our society would be facing right now and doing ministry in that, like, I don't know if I would have had the maturity to be able to accept the calling. And so God, like a parent who knows their child very well and knows what they can handle, is like, let's break this down into smaller steps. And so, and so God called me to this spot, and then to that spot, and then to that spot. And all of it was in pursuit of uh, the sound of the genuine. All of it was in pursuit of the, the, uh, this calling. But it's like, I learned eventually over time that your calling changes, but your creator does not. Your calling changes, but your creator does not. And sometimes there's a season in your life that is going to come to an end, and you didn't expect it to come to an end because you were so sure that this was going to be the thing. But the creator who put all of this together, who from 4.6 billion years ago, minimum was like, boy, I can't wait for this child of God to exist. Like that creator looks at your life and, and sees that there, is, there are more necessary pivots ahead that you might not have the maturity to accept right now. But if you practice following the creator, moving with the spirit, shuffling from this side to the next side, that there's a certain like holy nimbleness that you will develop that allows you to be responsive to the spirit. This, by the way, is a, is a message that I feel like is, is very important in, uh, in such a, a capitalist productionist society that's like, you gotta just set your goal and then never change. <laughs> and I, I think... <laughs> Um, like when I've talked to folks from the global South, when I've talked to folks who grew up in societies that, um, had kind of more of like a spiritual awareness, whether or not they identified it as Christian, this was such an easier message for them to be able to grasp because it's like, there's a, of course, like our bodies change, our lives change, our circumstances change. Of course our calling would change, but that's, um, that's really hard, uh, because there's a lot of shame in it associated with changing your goals. There's a lot of punishment for, pursuing one path and then going to another. And yet, we have this whole book called the Bible that is replete with characters who have had to change their whole lives to follow God, sacrifice so much, 
go through so much discomfort, go through so many dry seasons, go through so many uh, periods of life where they weren't totally sure if they were in touch with God, but they were trying to be faithful for the sake of a greater transformation. And there's a certain loss and grief in that too, uh, of having to follow that, of having to be holy and nimble. I saw that when I was uh, uh, traveling. I um, uh, did a trip where I backpacked from, like, I lived in Ecuador for a little bit. Yay, Ecuador. I know that there's some Ecuadorianos on the, on the stream right now. And then I uh, traveled through to Buenos Aires, Argentina, through the length of South America. And, like, the thing with travel is that you never really travel alone. You just don't know who you're going to be traveling with next. And so I would constantly find myself, like, on a bus or in a tour or uh, hiking on a trail. And I would just kind of like meet people and they would invite me in or befriend people and we would kind of talk about things. And at the end of it, there was always that, um, that anxiety of departure. There was always the separation anxiety of like, you know, you made these friends and then it's like, well, I'm going to go this way and you're going to go that way. And there's always like, uh, let me give you my email or like, let, let's stay in touch. And it's like, uh, there's always that spike of like, oh, I'm losing something. I'm losing something. Uh, and, and I think that that's really an emotional moment where we can practice some key spiritual disciplines here because that fear of loss is rooted in a sense of scarcity. And when we, um, honor a great experience with the travelers that we've been with for a while, while also knowing that it's time for us to part in an abundant way, in a grounded in love kind of way, in an authenticity kind of way, there can be a deeper peace in that moment. There can be a, a peace of like, my calling has changed, but my creator hasn't. And so I'm going to pursue my creator and you're going on a different path. But if God is with us, then what other issues, what other problems could there be? What loss is there if the, the creator of the universe is at our side? And so, um, yeah, so I think uh, continuing to pray through that, uh, that, fe that feeling of loss is, is so real. Because if, if we continue to fear loss, then that fear will rule our lives. And uh, there is a great danger in idolizing our vocation or idolizing the things that we were so sure of because um, if that becomes your god then you begin to serve the thing instead of serving the creator like when we look at pharaoh and moses uh, which is a story in the old testament pharaoh was like very dead set this is a walter brueggemann interpretation for you seminarians out there um it was like obsessed with production and was like, okay, we got to get these pyramids going. We got to like, yep, it's going to require slave labor. Don't care because we're pursuing our goal. And, uh, and then there's Moses who like had to be a little nimble, <laughs> who was like, I thought I was just listening to a burning bush, but now I'm doing this thing. And now I'm leading people to liberation. And I thought that our liberation would be the whole story. But then I was in 40 years of wilderness. And I thought that would be the whole story. Like, the story of Moses is like, I'm constantly adapting and responding to a spirit that is changing my life. And the story of Pharaoh is I'm trying to control things for the sake of predictable outcomes. And Pharaoh is the one who is enslaving people. So, <laughs> and Moses is the one who led people to liberation. So I think that like within the Bible itself, we see the, the danger of, of that type of idolatry. 
And I think that we, we also see that in the scripture reading that we had today of, of uh, John the Baptist. And this story is told a little bit different in different gospels, but did you catch that moment where John, who was who preceded Jesus, or like who was like on the ground a little bit before Jesus hit the scene, did he catch that line where he was like, I'm not worthy to take off the sandal of Jesus. So, um, so like, I'm, I'm not, like, you think that I'm a big deal, but, like, I have to um, humble myself. I'm not even worthy of taking off the sandal of Jesus. And I just think that that's such a powerful moment because isn't it true that sometimes we can be so aware of our shame and how unworthy we are of such and such and so and so, but then there's Jesus looking at John the Baptist who's like, hey, I need you to baptize me. (laughs) And John the Baptist is like, I'm not worthy to take off your sandals. And Jesus is like, okay, so that wasn't the question. (laughs) The question was, or like the invitation was to baptize me. And I think so similarly, like so many folks in our community are so stopped up with these statements of like, I'm just not worthy of this, or I don't even belong in this. Like, I could, there's no way I could possibly do this. And Jesus is looking at you saying like, I didn't ask you whether or not your worthiness was up for uh, measuring. I'm telling you that you are called into a space and that's what faithfulness looks like. And like wrestle with the shame, wrestle with the narratives of unworthiness so that you can step into the river and baptize Jesus when Jesus asks you to baptize him. (laughs) Like, you might not be worthy, you might feel like you're now, I believe that you're deeply worthy, I believe that you're infinitely beloved, but at some days you might not feel like you're worthy to even look up at the sky. But if you miss the opportunity to look at the sky, then you're not going to see God tearing apart heaven so that God can be among us, so that heaven can be on earth, so that the dove can descend like a Holy Spirit and our souls might be made whole. And so, like, befriend your shame enough that it, it can at least not prevent you from looking up to the sky and seeing just what God is up to. This, I believe, is the power of a holy nimbleness, something that is so grounded in a love of creator and so aware of our own belovedness that it can have this kind of flexibility, this holy nimbleness that allows us to adapt to situations just as we need to. May we all practice adaptation together. Amen.